Once a backwoods hillbilly family who had lived off the grid their whole lives long, they came to the big city. After checking into a swanky hotel, they picked up their bags and they followed their fellow guests to the elevators. Well, Pa and his kids had never seen an elevator before. They had no idea what this was, what this did. They just sort of sat there and stared at the contraption and sort of scratched their heads. Well, Paul was standing there when an elderly lady walked up to this big metal box and pushed a button. The doors opened. She walked inside. Seconds later, the doors opened again, and out walked a beautiful young woman. Well, the hillbilly was amazed. Without missing a beat, he turned to his son and he shouted, Quick, boy, go get your ma! The old man thought that elevator was a way to reverse the effects of aging and transform these old, worn-out bodies into new and ageless bodies. Of course, that hillbilly father isn't the only one with such a dream. I read an article this past week entitled, Billionaires Will Disrupt Death If It's the Last Thing They Do. It discusses the effects of four four ultra-billionaires and their attempts to defeat death. The article calls these men immortality financiers. They've given millions of dollars to biotech companies trying to expand human lifespans and eventually eliminate death altogether. They're not making much progress. Perhaps the most passionate of these death-defying entrepreneurs is the founder of Oracle, Larry Ellison. Ellison was quoted as saying, Death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish? Just not be there? And that's a good question. Death doesn't make sense. Why shouldn't the human body live forever? You know, theoretically, our bodies ought to rejuvenate indefinitely. That's what they do until around the age of 25, when suddenly, inexplicably, We start to deteriorate. Sorry if you're 24 and coming up on your 25th birthday, but you're about to find out. Some scientists theorize that solar radiation sends a false signal to our DNA that triggers our aging. That's a theory. The reason we die is still a mystery to science. Actually, we have to go to Scripture to get the real scoop on death. The Bible speaks of the law of sin and death. You see, any attempt to defeat death without considering that law is futile. It is sin that causes our bodies to die. And since only Jesus has the ability to forgive sin, He alone holds the keys to death and to resurrection. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul looks at death and resurrection The way that hillbilly paw looked at the elevator. As a Christian, we enter the doors of death, a rotting corpse. But then we exit a glorified heavenly body. In this morning's text, Paul shows us why there is no longer any reason for you and I as Christians to fear death. The undertaker is now our upper taker. Death has gone from being a lily pad where we croak to being a launching pad where we'll shine. 
Paul begins this section here in chapter 15, in verse 35, with a question. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Now, Paul has been talking about the importance of the resurrection of our bodies. And he has reasoned, if the human body isn't resurrected, and since Jesus had a human body, then Jesus never rose from the dead if our bodies aren't resurrected. And of course, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he has no power to forgive. That makes our faith worthless in the gospel we preach a lie. This is why the resurrection of the dead is so important to the Christian faith. Without it, Christianity falls apart like a house of cards. And this is why Paul declares the truth in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus overcame death and he paved the way for us to follow. He is the first. We are the gleanings yet to be harvested. Now in verse 35, Paul shifts gears from the importance of the resurrection to now the mechanics of the resurrection. How does this resurrection of the body happen? And Paul begins by rebuking them for having to address what to him was so obvious. He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Paul saw the principle of resurrection taught all around him, even in nature. In fact, in the next couple of verses, Paul is going to resort to some biology in order to teach a little theology. You see, the resurrection is seen in both botany and in the Bible. And here is the first principle on resurrection mechanics. Death precedes resurrection. You see, before a fruit sprouts, a seed has to be buried. It has to die. Resurrection requires a death. This principle was applied to Jesus' own resurrection by our Lord Himself. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus spoke of His death as a seed buried in the soil. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. A seed, in essence, dies. It nestles into the soil. It's buried in order to yield its fruit. And like a seed, the body of Jesus was buried in the earth to be resurrected and to bring many souls with him. A seed is a hard shell protecting a living embryo. The shell of the seed feeds and protects the living tissue inside. It absorbs water. It stores within it carbohydrates and fat. And when the conditions are just right, that seed breaks open. The shell dies. It literally sacrifices itself for the life of the burgeoning plant. It gets used up by the living tissue and becomes a new plant. The embryo uses the energy that was stored in the shell to get started, to send a root down to get water, to send a sprout up to get light. A new plant emerges. And this is how the resurrection of the body occurs. These old bodies that we carry around now are like the shell of a seed. Inside, every Christian is living tissue. 
God's Spirit births new life in us, eternal life inside us. Currently, that spiritual life is housed inside this crusty shell of a body. But when we die, we're like the shell being planted beneath the soil. Eventually, that old shell that grew weak and tired and was tempted and let us down in so many ways, it will be transformed. My body will be changed by God. It will be conformed to the life inside me. I'll have a new body. You can call it a bod from God. It'll be heavenly. And Paul continues his description in verse 37. He says, And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases. And to eat seed, its own body. And here's a second principle of resurrection mechanics. What goes into the ground isn't exactly what comes out of the ground. As Paul puts it, you do not sow that body that shall be. For what shall be is not just the seed. God takes the seed, but that's just his starting place. He transforms what was a corruptible seed into an incorruptible body. Often the idea of the resurrection gets mocked by the cynics. By the doubters. They'll say something like this. Well, okay, a Christian dies. He gets buried. His decaying body returns to the dust. Over time, that dust begins to blend into the soil. That soil then sprouts a blade of grass, which gets eaten by a hungry cow, which is then slaughtered at the steakhouse and cooked in a restaurant, and then eaten by your friend. Now you're not just you. You're also your friend. You are too. God resurrects molecules to reproduce who? But this idea is silly. For today, we know that God doesn't need all the cells of our body to reproduce us. All he needs is a single cell. And from that cell, he can extract our DNA, from which he can clone an entire body. The Creator can start with your DNA and transform it into something very different than it was before. Understand, just as an oak tree isn't the composition or size of the acorn, just as a daffodil doesn't look anything like the dirty, gnarly bulb that you planted from which it grew, just like a stalk of corn bears little resemblance to the kernel from which it originated, Our resurrected bodies will be very different in appearance and in composition from the bodies we inhabit now. A caterpillar eats and eats and eats until it grows too big for its own skin. Then it forms a chrysalis or a cocoon. Inside that cocoon, its organs break down and they get reconstructed. A metamorphosis takes place. Finally, The insect emerges, no longer a caterpillar, but now a beautiful butterfly. And this is a picture of the resurrection. You are that crawling caterpillar. Right now you are. Death will be your cocoon. But one day you'll emerge a beautiful butterfly. A testimony to God's glory and resurrection. Now this is why the three people that Jesus brought back from the dead were not technically resurrected. You remember Lazarus, 
the boy from Nain, Jairus' daughter. They were all raised from the dead, but they weren't resurrected, for they came back exactly as they were before. Oh, they were alive again, but they had the same corruptible bodies. In fact, all three of them had to die twice. In contrast, resurrection is receiving a body that never dies. Remember Jesus after his resurrection? There was no doubt his body was the same body that was crucified. His scars dispelled any doubt of that. You remember Thomas even touched his scars. Yes, his body was the same body that was crucified on the cross and buried in the tomb. But... It was different now in appearance and in composition. Now Jesus passed through solid walls. He traveled instantaneously. And here Paul is saying the same thing about our future bodies. They will be like and unlike our current body. Like and unlike. John Phillips makes this comment. He says, Paul avoids two pitfalls. He does not teach that the body raised is the exact corpse that was buried, although identity does survive. And he avoids the other pitfall, for he does not say that the resurrection body is a different body altogether. No, there is a mysterious blending of the old and of the new. Paul further explains in verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. At creation, God fashioned different body types for the very varied ecosystems and environments that He created. Birds have to be aerodynamic. Fish have to be aquadynamic. We all need a body type suitable for our environment. Paul continues, he says, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Celestial means heavenly, while terrestrial means earthly. And just as there are many different bodies on earth, the carcasses of men and of beasts and of fish and of fowl, there are also earthy bodies and heavenly bodies. Currently, you and I, we inhabit an earthly body, do we not? Mine's pretty earthy. How about yours? The angels, though, have heavenly bodies. And a body made for an earthly environment won't function in heaven any more than a body made for the sky will operate in the sea. Drop a parakeet into your bathtub. Guess what happens? Little old boy drowns. Drop a catfish out of a tree trop, treetop. That catfish is going to splatter on the ground. It's going to be ugly. And this is one of the reasons that God doesn't whisk a Christian off to heaven the moment they're saved. Why? If you in your earthly body were dropped into the environment of heaven, you'd drown like a parakeet in the sea. Or you'd splatter like a catfish dropped out of a tree. You see, our earthly bodies weren't built to handle God's glory and God's holiness. To live in the orbit of God's holiness, we need a different kind of body. That's a different environment. 
Human bodies are earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. They would disintegrate in glory. This is why these bodies need to be transformed. Paul writes in verse 41, There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Each star has its own mass, its own luminosity, its own density. Heavenly bodies have unique characteristics. And so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. Oh, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. Understand, resurrection works off of death. Remember the first principle we mentioned regarding the mechanics of resurrection. Death precedes resurrection. New life springs from old life, but only when that old life ceases to exist. This is why death is necessary. It's a necessary evil. Bodies only change in character after they die. Resurrection kicks in only after death. You see, one day our human bodies will go from rotting and decaying to incorruptible and indestructible. I can't wait. They're going to go from shameful to glorious. They're going to go from frail to strong. They're going to be transformed from natural bodies to spiritual bodies. Notice Paul doesn't use the term death here. Instead, he writes, sown. Our bodies are going to be sown. This is truly wonderful to me. Now, obviously, he means death. But for a Christian, he uses softer words like sown or as he did earlier, sleep. Death for us is like a seed sown. Spurgeon once said, a farmer never weeps when he sows a seed. And why? Because he plants that seed fully expecting it to sprout and produce some delicious fruit. Why cry when what comes after the sowing is better? For a believer, Paul sees death as a weary laborer who's relieved to finally get to put his head down on a pillow and get a little sleep. He plops his head down on that pillow, having every confidence that he'll wake up in a few hours just as he's done his whole life long. This is death for a Christian. Just a sleep. Just a nap. Elsewhere, Paul is very clear about the destiny of our spirits after our death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he writes of a deceased Christian, he's absent from the body... And he's present with the Lord. That means that the instant your body expires, your spirit enters the presence of Jesus in heaven. In the meantime, though, these decaying, dishonored, frail bodies are asleep, waiting on that future wake-up call. They're being sown until the day when they sprout again, incorruptible and in glory and in power. I'll never forget visiting a man on his deathbed. This fellow was in terrible pain. Mike had cancer. It was eating him away. But on his deathbed, he gave his life to Jesus. Actually baptized him in his hospital bed. 
And I can remember asking him, Mike, is there anything that I can do for you? He said sort of bluntly, he said, no, unless you can get me a new body. I told him, I said, well, I can't, but I got some good news because I know someone who can. One day, Mike will get his new body, a sickness-free, a pain-free, a cancer-free body. In fact, everybody who trusts in Jesus will one day receive a bod from God. This morning, what if I had some marigold seeds? But when I went to plant these marigold seeds, I discovered that these seeds were scared. Imagine these seeds talking back to the planter. What if they were to say to me, we don't want to be planted. Who wants to get dirty? It's nice and clean down here in your pocket, Pastor Sandy. And what if I replied, but it's your job to get dirty. Seeds go into the soil. Oh, we're going on strike. What's the problem with you seeds? Do you guys think I'm going to hurt you? Of course we do. We're afraid. We don't want to be buried. We don't want to die. That's it? You're afraid to die? Yes, it happens to our friends all the time. They get buried and we never see them again. I'd say to those seeds, but you do see them again. Your friends are now gorgeous flowers that sprout up. It sure doesn't look like them. That's because like Jesus, the old body gets buried. But those old bodies rise with a transformed, glorified body. Finally, my seeds might conclude, wow, do we get to do that too? And like those seeds, we get to do that too. Nature teaches us that before we enjoy the new life of spring, we first have to go through the death of winter. For three months, all the greenery, all the life has been buried underground. Hey, in the cold of January, do you believe in the warmth of March? Or do you doubt that the flowers will ever bloom again? I'm sure you have faith. That's why you endure. Spring is coming. And this is the hope that we should have when that last spade of dirt is thrown on the body of our brother in Christ. We'll meet again. Resurrection is real. Paul writes in verse 44, There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man, that is Adam, was of the earth, made of dust, but the second man, that is Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. Adam was earthy. In fact, in the Hebrew, the name Adam sounds like the word earth. Earthy Adam came first. Whereas Jesus was heavenly. You remember, he came from heaven. He took orders from heaven. His father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He even ascended back to heaven. And Paul speaks here of God's order. The earthy comes first, then the heavenly. And the same is true for us. We're born the first time of our father Adam. And we receive the same kind of earthly body he had. But when we are born again into Christ, 
He promises us a spiritual body. But the natural comes first. You see, when a butterfly lays an egg, it doesn't hatch as a butterfly. It hatches as a caterpillar first. And the same is true of us. One day we'll be free and colorful butterflies, but first comes the caterpillar stage. Welcome to the caterpillar stage. We get a bod from the sod before we get that bod by God. I'm going to get as much out of that rhyme as I can by the time this Bible study's over. Think of it this way. I believe every teenager ought to drive a beater before they graduate to a nice car. Do I get an amen from my son? Yeah. All four of my kids drove high-mileage, rusted-out jalopies. You see, driving a jalopy for for a few years ensures that you'll appreciate when you finally are able to afford that newer model. And this is God's strategy. Right now, we're in the beater, man. These bodies we're in are jalopies. They got some nicks. They sputter. They break down. But one day, we're going to get a brand new model fresh off the lot. We're going to have bodies with no dents that always run at peak performance. You'll be able to sniff them, and your body will feel like that, smell like that new car smell. Hey, during the seven weeks after his resurrection, Jesus displayed the capabilities of these future bodies, our future bodies. For he took his own heavenly body out on a 40-day test drive. The risen Christ was unhindered by time and by space. You remember Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then suddenly he disappeared as he was breaking bread. When he appeared to the disciples, they were behind closed, locked doors. Jesus must have come through the wall. His body dematerialized, then it rematerialized on the other side of the wall. We're talking Star Trek stuff. Beam me up, Scotty. And yet his body was made of flesh and bone. It was a real body. Thomas touched him. Jesus even ate food. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. You know, that's pretty fast. Speed of light is pretty fast. Faster than my wife drives. But there is something faster than the speed of light. You know what it is? It's the speed of thought. It's the speed of desire. Jesus traveled at the speed of desire. He wasn't bound by time or space. And when we're fitted with our resurrection bodies, we won't be either. Here's how this might work. Lock your keys in the car. No biggie. You can just transport yourself right through the door panel. Get those keys. But who will need a car? Want to take a jaunt around the world? Just think it and you'll be there. Our resurrection bodies will be out of this world. Verse 48 tells us, For as was the man of dust so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Oh my, how glorious. I could stop right there. Just as I bore Adam's image, his body, 
I'm going to wear the body that Jesus wore. I'll bear his image. Our natural body was like Adam. Thus, the resurrected model will be like Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 2 becomes a window into your destiny. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Mull on that for a little while. In his book, The Great Divorce, theologian C.S. Lewis imagined what heavenly bodies might actually look like. He writes this, I saw people coming to meet us. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant. And at first, I did not know that they were people at all. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. Some were naked, some robed. But the naked ones did not seem less adorned. And the robes did not disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of their muscles and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Some were bearded, but no one struck me as being of any particular age. Sum it up, they were shining, they were strong, they were unblemished, they were smooth-skinned, they were ageless. A heavenly man is going to be a sight to behold. In another place, Lewis writes, A regenerate man in glory would be something we in our ignorance might be tempted to worship. If through these eyes we saw a believer in his or her glorified body, we might mistake the human for divine. We might fall right down and worship them. Heavenly bodies, I'm just saying, are going to be heavenly. And then verse 50 tells us, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 39, when the risen Christ appeared to his disciples in the upper room, he challenged them. He said, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Notice Jesus referred to himself as flesh and bones, not flesh and blood. His blood had been shed for us. Apparently, his resurrection body had no blood, just flesh and bones. Evidently, our bodies are sort of like a gallon of milk. Flesh and blood, that's what we're in right now, has a shelf life. Flesh and blood is corruptible. Though it's not stamped on you anywhere, at least not that I know of, your body has an expiration date. You know that. Flesh and blood. That means that it can't inherit eternal life. Not if it has an expiration date. It can't live forever. It can't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, when men walked on the moon, NASA knew that a human body could never survive on the lunar surface. Earthly bodies aren't fit for lunar life. That's why NASA designed a life support suit for the moonwalks. And likewise, these mortal bodies that we are currently inhabiting aren't suited to survive in the physical presence of God. Again, if we entered 
pure, unbridled holiness, wearing flesh and blood, we might melt faster than ice cream cone on a July afternoon. To enter God's throne room, we have to shed our earth suits and we need to suit up in a heavenly body, in a spiritual body. Corruption must put on incorruption. Remember now the question the Corinthians had asked back in verse 35. It was a twofold question. Not only with what body do they come, which Paul has been answering, but now they also ask, how are the dead raised up? And in the next few verses, Paul is going to give us a play-by-play. He's going to answer that question. In fact, if you're a Christian, what the apostle is about to describe could be entitled, The Greatest Day of Your Life. Now where you're at in life right now, if I were to ask you, what has been the greatest day of your life? What would you say? My wedding day. My graduation day. Maybe you're thinking, the day I retire, that'll be the greatest day. The day my baby's born. Oh, oh, the day we finally make that final mortgage payment. That'd be the greatest day of my life. The day I finally get off probation. That'll be the greatest day of my life. No, no. If you're a believer in Jesus, the greatest day in your life will be the day that Jesus snatches up his church. Trust me, it will be. And here's how it'll happen. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. By the way, we used to have that sign hanging on the wall in the church nursery that quoted verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul here, though, is writing about another changing day. Here's a real moving day for you. Whether you're alive at the time or you have occupied the grave for a thousand years, God has a day circled on His calendar when our corruptible bodies are going to be changed. These natural, earthly, weak, dishonorable, decomposing bodies will be transformed into spiritual, heavenly, powerful, glorified, incorruptible bodies. And it will happen in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, not Donald Trump, but the last trumpet, you'd think a transformation from earthy to heavenly would take at least hours, (laughs) if not days or years, even for the great physician. Ah, but Jesus plans to give you and I a new body. Boom, just like that. Not in a blink of an eye. He doesn't say a blink of an eye. He says in a twinkle. You know, a blink, it takes one-third of a second for your eye to blink. One-third of a second. A twinkle. That's even faster. I don't know how faster. That's faster. Some people here try to identify the last trumpet with the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, which would then put the church in the great tribulation. I think that's naive. In the Old Testament, God had Moses make two silver trumpets, which were used for a multitude of purposes. In the Bible, God uses many trumpets for various reasons. 
Hey, I believe the last trumpet here is just the last call for the church. It's that last signal from our Lord before He returns. It alerts us that He's coming for us. I want to hear that trumpet. He says, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The dead, those are the Christians of all ages who have died before us. The we that will be changed is the church at the time of this last trumpet blast. This event is what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 4 as the rapture. Paul said to the Thessalonians that on that day, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits who are coming with Jesus. They go first because they got six feet further to go. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Our bodies will also be changed instantly and will be snatched away. Here one second, gone the next. This is the one exception to resurrection mechanics. For one Christian generation, death won't precede resurrection. We'll be snatched away. We'll be caught up alive together with Jesus Christ and live with Him forever. Verse 53 tells us, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. You see, bodies designed for time aren't capable of occupying eternity. We need bodies redesigned for our new environment, for heaven. That's why this corruptible must put on incorruption. It must. If you wanted to hold on to this body forever, you couldn't. You wouldn't want to. You must put on incorruption. I love the tombstone. I've seen it several times. It has the following inscription. Budded on earth to bloom in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us that that is the destiny of all believers in Jesus. But it on earth to bloom in heaven. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And here Paul quotes Isaiah 25 verse 8. And oh how I love this truth. Our Lord Jesus won't be satisfied until He has reversed every trace of sin and its painful consequences, including our enemy, death. Death will be swallowed up or totally vanquished. Realize, death is the only pest that stings before it bites. It's frustrating. You know, the worst feature of death is not that it ends life, but that it spoils life before it ends it. Pleasures are not quite as pleasurable, knowing that one day they'll be over. Valuables are not quite as valued. Honor is not quite as honorable, knowing that one day it'll be left in the grave. That's why death takes the edge off living. It steals away our joys. It snuffs out relationships. It separates wives from husbands and parents from children and friends from close friends. And even when life is at its best, death stands over there in the shadows taunting us, knowing that it'll get the last laugh 
That's why death stings. It produces a deep, dark frustration. Once a missionary visited a village deep in the jungle. The whole tribe suffered from a dreaded disease. The missionary identified the illness as an infection that was easily treated with the proper antibiotic. And there were doctors in a nearby village who could administrate this life-saving drug. But the tribesmen, they refused to travel. You see, the problem was the river. Superstition said that the river was the home of demons and death and evil spirits. And all their lives, the tribesmen had seen that river as the enemy. They feared the river. No villager had ever been to the other side of the river. Witch doctors said it was futile to try and to cross the waters. This desperate tribe was trapped by the river. And that's why the missionary, he knew exactly what he needed to do to save this tribe. He led them down to the river's edge and he waded out into the water. The villagers begged their friend not to risk his life. They were sure the river would swallow him up. Imagine, though, their elation when suddenly he surfaced on the other side, alive and well. The river had not swallowed the missionary. He had won the victory. And this is what Paul means when he writes, death is swallowed up in victory. On the day that Jesus was crucified, the disciples saw him plunge into that murky river called death. All their lives long, they had believed that no one could cross that river and live to tell about it. How surprised they were when three days later, Jesus reappeared on the opposite shore. He had braved the waters of death and had overcome. Jesus was alive and well. When the missionary climbed from the river onto the opposite bank, the villagers saw that the river wasn't as sinister as they thought. It was really nothing to fear. And Jesus' resurrection teaches us the same lesson about death. Follow Jesus, and you no longer have to fear the river. Jesus has conquered the villain of death. In fact, Paul taunts where he once feared. He says, oh death, where is your sting? Oh Hades. Where is your victory? Death and Hades no longer have a hold on the Christian. Jesus has sprung the lock and set us free. Verse 56 tells us, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. You remember the law defines sin. Hey, you know, without a speed limit, how do you know you're speeding? That's what the law did. It exposed our sin. But what defines sin also incited sin. Have you ever noticed the surest way to get a teenager to do something is to tell him or her not to do it? You ever notice that? You see, that was the Hebrews' reaction to the law. Tell a sinner not to do this or not to go there, and the mere suggestion entices them to disobey. And this is why the law was no help in our struggle with sin. And that's why Paul here praises the Lord, not the law. Praise erupts in verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how should we live now in light of that victory? Well, he tells us in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If this life is all that there is, why not be selfish? 
Why not be greedy? Just live for numero uno. But because Jesus lives, we'll give an account of our lives to Him. What's done in this life really does matter. Our work and our labor for the Lord is not in vain. And this is why Paul tells us, be steadfast. That is, never give up. Be immovable. Never give in. Always abounding. Never give out. Here's how to live in light of the resurrection. Never give up. Never give in. Never give out. Never, never give up your convictions and your love for God, your faith in Him. Never give in to the temptations and pressures of this world. Never get out, give out in your service of the Lord. He'll fill your tank. He'll replenish you and give you more strength. What you do for Jesus does matter. As the old saying goes, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Let me close with a story. I'm, you've probably heard it before. I share it often. Once there was a little boy, he was allergic to bee stings. He and his father, they were in the car, headed to a ball game. When suddenly they noticed a bee buzzing around the dashboard. The little boy, he panicked. His dad reached up and he grabbed the bee in the palm of his hand. He held it tight. His son was relieved. But then after only a few seconds, he, he then released the bee. Again, the little boy grew hysterical. Daddy, daddy, I'm allergic. Why did you turn loose of the bee? And that's when the dad, he opened his fist and he revealed the stinger in his palm. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He has taken the sting out of death. The stinger is now in the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus is risen from the dead, and we have nothing left to fear.